Okay, uh, welcome to another episode of the Tim Wendable Coffee podcast. Today we are going to talk about um, 25 years of history uh, because uh, it's September in 2023 and uh, it turns out that it's 25 years since I started working in coffee. Um, my story is quite long <laughs> and um, together with me today to talk about my story is a person that I've been working with for many many years I think maybe since 2000 uh, and his name is Andreas Hertzberg. Welcome Andreas. Thank you. Andreas, we have worked together since 2000, I think, and uh, because you have been uh, the CEO of Solbergen Hansen, which is a roasting company in Oslo that used to own the coffee shops that I started working for, Stockfoots. Uh, Stockfoots is a coffee chain. We're going to dig into that as well. And then uh, you also happen to be the chairman of our board of directors of the company we are running now. That's correct. Yes. yes. But maybe you can also introduce yourself to the audience and tell them a little bit about who you are uh, before we start talking about my 25 years in coffee. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, my name is Andreas. Um, I started working uh, in coffee in 97 when I um, opened a coffee shop in Trondheim, uh, north, a little bit north of Oslo, uh, called Drumadair, yeah. uh, Coffee Bar. Uh, so that was my entrance to coffee. Uh, other than making coffee at home, obviously. Um, so uh, after a few years, um, I started working for Solberg and Hansen in 2000. Uh, as uh, I mean, in the beginning, I wasn't CEO, but uh, after a couple of years, I became CEO. Um, and it was just in the beginning of uh, this era that you're, yeah. we have been through. Uh, so uh, yeah, it. Um, I worked at Solberg and Hansen for like 16 years. Uh, and then I left uh, and joined Nordic Approach full time, which uh, where I'm currently also working. Yeah, that sums it up pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Very short and neat, yes. But uh, the reason why I want to talk about my history in coffee is because not only because of uh, like self-promotion, but also because I find it uh, to be a very interesting area. Oh, era, because uh, the coffee shops in Oslo, when I started working in a coffee shop in 1998, I think the first coffee shops, as we know them today, opened around 96, maybe. Uh, and that was Café Brenneria and uh, Rooster Coffee, that used to be in the train station, and Café Krem, that used to be at Solibras, and then Java, uh, which is still going uh, at Santon 7. I... I mean, if I can interrupt, because otherwise people will be offended. Yeah. So, <laughs> because there's always who opened first a new uh, generation of coffee shops in Oslo. Uh, and uh, I think, I mean, Rooster claimed that they were first. Um, but Coffee Blender, I think actually they opened in 94. Oh. Uh, so they were quite early, uh, same time around as Rooster. I don't know who actually was the first. Yeah. Maybe it was Coffee Blender or Rooster, it doesn't matter. But 94. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, the funny thing was like uh, when I went to my first coffee course at Solberg and Hansen in 1996, end of 96, uh, I went to the same coffee course as a lot of the people that you were mentioning, like um, 
uh, Robert Thorsen from uh, Kaffa. Yeah. He was at the same course. Uh, Kaffa Pikene, Ulrika Hedendal. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of Evita actually also. Uh, espresso bar from Oslo. Nice. So everyone, wo- I'm not everyone, but a lot of the people who started in 97 uh, was um, at the same course uh, end of '96. Uh, t- so it was kind of so, yeah. So therefore, I know that the Java they opened like in uh, I think it was '97 or '98. Yeah. They were around same time. Can so, be. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> I went straight out of high school uh, in '98. Uh, didn't have a job. Uh, I, I actually that's not true. I worked in a grocery store, but yeah. I was I had done that through uh, throughout my high school, so I was a little bit tired of it. So I quit that job and uh, was looking for a new one. And I just, you know, I I was 19, so I couldn't get a job in a bar. I was too young. And uh, I had a nose ring, so I couldn't get a job in <laughs> anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and back then, this was before internet was really practical. So I was looking in the newspaper every day for, for job vacancies and then couldn't really find anything. And then I went downtown Oslo by the parliament, and uh, there was a little store there that had a note in the window looking for uh, people. And then I went in there, got the number to the boss, Mr. Arvid Skovli. Ah. And I called him, and uh, we arranged for an interview. And it turned out uh, that they only had two people applying for the job, and they needed two full-time baristas. (laughs) baristas. <laughs> so I was hired immediately. Uh, I actually didn't wear the nose ring that day on the interview, and I never wore it since. Hmm. So that was the end of my teenage era, I guess. But uh, this was in 1998, and uh, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of these coffee shops had just opened. I personally didn't drink coffee. I didn't know what a coffee shop was. I guess most people didn't. So when I got home, told my mom and dad that I'd gotten a job in a coffee shop. They were like, you mean a coffee store where you sell beans? Hmm. And I'm like, no, we sell coffee drinks. And people were, you know, my parents were like, what? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. <laughs> because back then the culture of going to cafes in Oslo was not very big. Um, how, like you started Drumadar in Trondheim, like what made you do that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I went to Trondheim to go to university. Uh, and being from Oslo, um, coming to Trondheim at that time, it was kind of a very old school. Um, I mean, they used to say in Trondheim that it's like 50, no, 500 kilometers from Oslo, but it's like 50 years in time, yeah. they said. <laughs> so, so it was like, uh, you know, this old school cafes with bakery, bakery cafe, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's what people did. And there's a lot of students there. So. So, uh, I mean, I have to say that, you know, you're inspired or I was inspired by uh, by the, the slowly starting scene in Oslo. Mm. So I was home for, you know, Christmas and holidays and then you went to the coffee shop and I didn't really know, let's say, what good coffee was, but it was more that coffee was more than just coffee. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and then I was like a little bit entrepreneurial and I wanted to, to run my own business and then I just start looking for for uh, I mean, it's not really well thought through, I think. No. But then you start looking for a location, and you find a location, and then you you have it going. So then all of a sudden you start, and it was within reach. I would say it was kind of a modern thing. It was not too expensive to start, a low entry barrier in a way. And but it was it was very hard because uh, because uh, still at that time people were smoking inside. It wasn't really. I mean, it was just so much different from what we. In, as we know it today, kind of. Mm. So uh, yeah, that's um, 
yeah, it's just a coincidence, I think. Yeah. And I remember when I started at Stockwitz, um, there were four people working there. It, it was the small uh, store by the parliament, so yeah. in Lilligansen. It's still there, but it's uh, remodeled a little bit. But it's tiny, I tiny, think, maybe, yeah. you know, less than 20, less than 30 square meters at least. Yeah. And um, I remember uh, we were four people working there. All, all of us were new. So I went to a course at Solbergenhansen, like you did. Solbergenhansen being back then maybe the only kind of high quality roster left in Oslo. Yeah. There were a few elsewhere in the country, but uh, they were kind of the, the main one supplying most of these coffee shops. And I uh, had like a three course, uh, three hour course with uh, Willy Hansen, the yeah. legendary, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who kind of uh, taught everyone how to make espresso, but nobody really knew what they were doing. So that's why the course only lasted three hours. <laughs> Back then you had like pre-ground espresso coffee in a grinder. You, yeah. you pull the grinder once for a single dose and twice for a double dose. You tamped, you put it in the machine aimed for 20 to 30 seconds, hopefully. And then you steamed some milk that looked more like meringue <laughs> <laughs> and put the foam on top and that was a cappuccino and with some cinnamon and stuff. Yeah. And I remember my the customers in the store were like, probably the majority of them, maybe 90% were old ladies and old men coming in to buy beans uh, because Stocklitz used to be like a traditional coffee store. Yeah. And then uh, maybe 10% of the customers were journalists who worked in the street that uh, the store was, uh, coming in to be continental and drink espresso and cappuccino and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I also remember the first time I got an order for a cafe mocha, uh, I didn't know what it was. So I had to ask the customer what it was. And they're like, hmm, I think there's chocolate inside. I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I remember that uh, that time because I mean I remember when we we started up like uh, the first espresso you made or we made kind of we didn't even know that there was supposed to be crema yeah. uh, on the on the cup. I mean like uh, because I mean if you don't do the right extraction you don't get crema. Yeah, uh, and then also I mean obviously this uh, Italian uh, uh, influence where I mean it had to be some percentage of robusta. Many many people claim that it has to be some uh, percentage of robusta in the in the blends in order to create the crema. Yeah, and there was a lot of. Um, I mean, we d we basically had no knowledge, as you're saying. Yeah, and to uh, let's touch on that because yeah. the coffees we were serving, <laughs> as you say, there was robusta inside, although the owner of Solberg and Hansen back then never talked about robusta, <laughs> or when he did, he said robusta is bad. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was, uh, I think it was Brazil-based, the blend we were serving. Uh, and But it was like Golden Santos, which is aged Brazil coffee. True. Uh, aged being, it tastes like wood, basically. And then there was Monsoon Malabar, which is also aged and sometimes a little musty in mm. flavor. Yeah, moldy. I, I know Even. there was Monsoon Robusta in it. Yeah. And uh, maybe some more. Uh, the the worst was actually monsoon triage. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> and what is that? Explain. I I mean to be honest, I mean this was the let's say the <laughs> at that time the owner, like you said, Trigva. He uh, he claimed that monsoon triage was uh, you know a very nice spice uh, yeah. that it was like a, as a value add kind of. He was telling the story, uh, but uh, triage is like it's almost like the sweepings. Yeah. So it's uh, it's really really bad coffee. 
uh, and it I think to be honest that it was bought because of the price yeah uh, low price and uh, and it was funky so I mean sometimes I mean it was inconsistent I would say <laughs> the coffee was very darkly roasted yes. I remember it had Small. like oily yeah. uh, shine to it even though it was a mix of French and Italian roast yeah uh, so the blend we served was half and half yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's funny to laugh at it now, but that was we were dead serious about it, and I remember we were uh, really focused on like it had to have crema and it had to taste good. Uh, but the problem was I didn't know what good taste was. No, and and I mean I have to fill in on that because for me, I remember when I got the job, it was kind of a random uh, thing uh, that was during summer in uh, 2000 uh, at Solbergansen, and then. I mean, one of the first things I did when I came to work was like, after hours, I went down to the to the um, warehouse, and I kind of took a um, a sample of every. Uh, maybe we had twenty different coffees, mm. uh, and I was completely new. Uh, and I had I mean, I had had this wild coffee from Papua New Guinea, which was fantastic, mm. uh, you know, as a customer. Um, and then I I remember I took all the coffees home and. I had friends and family, you know, for, during the weekend, and I was, uh, let's say, putting up a cupping at uh, at home, mm. and most of the coffees were tasting horrible. Yeah, um, and this was due to the fact that, I mean, coffee was this was after summer, so I mean, some of these coffees were even roasted before the roast master went on holiday, <laughs> <laughs> and it was standing in the basement at Solvagnansen for like weeks and months in paper bags, in paper bags, o- open, open paper bags, exactly. Yeah. And nobody knew when it was roasted. I mean, maybe there was a sign. I don't remember, to be honest. But it was more like he roasted up so they, they wouldn't run out of the coffees. Yeah. And some coffees that were, especially the ones that you had high expectations about, they were, you know, they were selling slowly. Yeah. And then uh, the coffee got old. Yeah. And it tasted, you know, at the end of the day, bad. Yeah. Um, so it was that was my first disappointment. And I didn't, I mean, we didn't know. But you still realized it when you tried it, kind of. Yeah. I had so many stories about the quality there. I mean, we're not here to talk down on Solberg Hansen. No. Today they are a completely different roastery and doing a fantastic job. Uh, I mean, a lot of thanks to you because you've been the CEO for many years there and done a lot of changes. Yeah. But back then it was really, it feels like the Stone Age when we're sitting here and talking about it. And one of the things that I remember is that <clears throat> they, um, we got coffee delivered twice a week. So I think it was Tuesday and Friday. And I remember always on Mondays, the coffees were terrible. Uh, the, when I made espresso, there was no crema. It was kind of f- flushing out of the machine and it didn't taste good. And I always called the roasters and asked, like, have you done anything different with the coffee you delivered on Friday? They said, no, we didn't do anything different. I mean, they wouldn't know because they didn't log anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I discovered uh, a little bit later uh, was that they were water quenching the coffee. Mm-hmm. So that means they spray coffee on the coffee inside the roaster to cool it down. This yeah. is quite common practice still today in yeah. commercial big roasters because it's very difficult to cool down such a big mass. But when you water quench the coffee, a lot of the CO2 inside evaporates within 24 hours. Yeah. And that means you actually, the CO2 is what creates the crema and that's why we didn't get the crema. Yeah. And also the coffee was not packed in sealed bags, so it tasted oxidized yeah. extremely fast. Yeah. Uh, I didn't discover the reason until maybe 2004 or five, but um, uh, I remember calling them you know, once a week and I thought that was really annoying. 
because <laughs> I would complain a lot. I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you were the nosy, you know, client uh, that were pushing uh, pushing the boundaries in a way, which was, you know, of course, I mean, when you're uh, in hectic uh, every day, it's not uh, what you hope for. But then again, you you still. Uh, kind of appreciate it at the end of the day yeah because it uh, moves you forward and and I also have to say to the it's not at all the down talking of Solberg and Hansen it's it's rather on the contrary even from my from my point of view because it's it's more the I mean what is difficult now like we talked about briefly is that I mean it's everything that we do now seems so natural mm. but I mean if you go 20 years back or even more than 20 years back it's it was, I mean, we didn't know, and mm. nobody knew. Mm. Uh, and um, in the US or other countries, it was more, I mean, they, they had a better that sense of the the, um, uh, the institution. I mean, like in, in the US and, and Italy, especially with, uh, yeah. with uh, the coffee bar culture. But yeah. I mean, the quality, not at all. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that um, when we're saying that, you know, things were, it was, there was basically no competition. Uh, and uh, and this was what they did be out of practical. It was not because they were cheating. It, nobody knew better. Yeah. And then uh, as we kind of digged into it together, indiv- individually and together or whatever, it's like you just knew that you could do it better. Yeah. And we have to remember, Solberg Hansen back then was a hundred years old, like the company. So yeah. they had been doing, you know, going through phases, of course. Let's talk a little bit about the community, because uh, one thing is that uh, I worked at Stockflats that was owned by Solberg & Hansen. So I kind of felt like a colleague of a lot of the people who worked there. But I also felt that uh, even though the people who worked at Drumadar, which was in Trondheim, where you started, yeah. and they also had a store in Bergen, and um, we kind of met uh, at events like the Norwegian Barista Championship from time uh, again, and we were sharing a lot of knowledge and kind of learning together. Like yeah. uh, I remember competitions being maybe the forum where we were practicing, of course, to to participate, but also um, kind of looking at each other and getting inspiration from each other and talking about coffee together. Um, and that, for me, at least in the beginning, was a huge uh, source of information because. Uh, let's talk about 1999, for instance, which was my first barista competition. Um, I actually didn't uh, apply to participate, but uh, Arvid Skovli, who was my boss, he called me one afternoon in the store and said, Tim, uh, there's a barista competition next week. And I signed you up and I say, <laughs> yes, let's do this. <laughs> and then I asked Willy, who was my kind of espresso teacher. Um, is there anything I should do? And then he gave me a video uh, from David Schomer um, that showed how to pour a latte art. And I was practicing and practicing, and I could barely pour a heart on the competition. But, uh, you know, Willie had gotten the video and lent it to many baristas. So I remember a few baristas there were already masters of latte art, uh, like Robert Torsen, and uh, I think also Preben was pretty good at it. Um, and uh, so that it was kind of a community thing where Willy was some kind of a master who inspired a lot of people to to, to push things. I think yeah, he was. And you have a funny story about the yeah. the competition then, because this was 1999. I think maybe there were like 20 baristas competing uh, maximum, and uh, everyone who didn't come first, second, or third place, we all came on fourth place. So yeah. all I remember then is that I came fourth place. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was there with my uh, 
I just got a daughter and uh, she, I was there with her in the trolley and it was coffee across the oceans that uh, big day. Yeah. Uh, and you know, all the people, I mean, it was this a uh, lot of, you know, small community and, um, and uh, I was there to watch Preben because he was, I was working with him in, in the Madad. Uh, and, um, yeah, it was interesting, but I also remember, I mean, the one, one of the sponsors of the event was, uh, Jamaica Blue Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they had this barrel, and that's the first time I tried that coffee, and I didn't like that either. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, also one of the things that we kind of moved away from yeah. uh, during the course of the next years at that time. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyways, um, I don't remember exactly the the, um, the, the order, but there, there was two competitions. There was one, uh, one uh, like a Norwegian championship, mm. and then there was a Nordic uh, and there was probably some other people there. I don't remember even if there was some from Iceland or yeah, uh, uh, at least Denmark and Sweden was there. Yeah, uh, I think maybe Iceland as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, you have to correct me if I'm remembering wrong. But but what I remember is that um, uh, Robert Torsen he probably won uh, the Nordic. I think it. Did. I think it's it yeah. that way. And Preben he won the. Um, the Norwegian, the Norwegian championship, and that was kind of a mind, uh, mind. Uh, I should not use that word, but it was a mind. It was difficult for the mind to uh, to understand that you could be a Norwegian champion, but and and the other one could be a Nordic champion at the same yeah. event, basically. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, I don't know if that ever came through, but. Uh, I'm sorry, Preben, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the he, secret is out. The secret is out. I think uh, he he was so stressed when he did his signature drink, and this was so early stage of uh, of the actual competition. So, I th- from what I recall, he re- he forgot to pour coffee in the signature beverage, uh, and he still won. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after that, it's always been like I mean, I don't even know if it was a. I mean, it should be. A, uh, mandatory type coffee in the signature drink. It is, yeah. It is, yeah. and it uh, probably was also, but yeah. uh, but uh, he won, as far as I know, without. No, one, no wonder it tasted good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so difficult to make a signature drink with coffee. I remember my signature drink uh, back then was a King Kong mocha. Wow. It was uh, served in a banana-shaped glass. Uh, it was basically a banana ice cream milkshake with uh, a shot of uh, espresso and a uh, a lot of whipped cream on top, like it looked like the Empire State Building. Yeah. And on top, I put a little coffee bean, and that was King wow. Kong. Wow. <laughs> yeah, when you're talking about the signature drinks, I mean, I've been judging a few uh, competitions, uh, especially in the old days, and um, it is really, I mean, I mean, in the beginning, the all the drinks were sweet, and they were maximalistic in a way, with you know cream and uh, yeah. and uh, you know big drinks and terrible compared to what the level of sophistication that you see today yeah yeah but i mean this was the end of the 90s yeah we love that stuff yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, let's talk about the importance of that competition because i think the first one was in 1998 uh, the norwegian barista competition i think it was created by alf kramer and trigve together maybe it was alf's idea yeah um but trigve kind of had the money to fund it and then 99 came and we had like the coffee, what was the name of that kind of exhibition we had in Norway? What's the Coffee Across the Ocean? Coffee Across the Ocean. And and as far as I remember, I think actually SEIE, I mean the Specialty Coffee Association of Europe, was basically founded at that event. 
Really? I think so oh, because okay. uh, I think there were like some because people were gathered and I think that that's when they started SEAE. Yeah. I'm I'm not 100% sure but I'm I have a slight memory of that. Interesting. So SEAE being kind of the specialty coffee association of Europe, there was an American association already in existence. Yeah. So uh, Alf and Trigve kind of founded the European one, I think. Hmm. And uh, because they already had the Norwegian uh, barista competition, that's also why they did a Nordic one that there. And I think it's the first and the last time they've done a Nordic barista competition. Yeah. Um, and then the year after, in 2000, uh, they actually had the first world barista competition in Monaco. That's correct. Yeah. And that was the same kind of organizers and format. So no wonder Norway <laughs> did well. Not just because of that. Robert was a great barista. Uh, and I looked very much up to his skills and um, was very much inspired that he won. Mm. Uh, so the first World Barista Champion is Robert Thorsen from Norway. And that inspired me to compete more uh, because I did compete in 2000. I think I came second maybe in the Norwegian Championship. So in 2001, uh, Robert obviously didn't compete and I won the Norwegian Championship. Huh. And then I went to Miami for the second World Barista Championship. And I remember it was not big back then. It was kind of uh, stowed away in the back of a conference hall. And uh, the spectators were basically the other competitors and a few more. Yeah. <laughs> and then we had uh, one in Oslo, actually, in 2002, yeah. where we invited a lot of people. And uh, that's the first time it kind of became the main event at a show. Because there was a little show in Oslo as well, but it wasn't really important, I guess. No, it wasn't. And I think that, I mean, what you can, I mean, again, I think Solberg Hansen was extremely uh, instrumental for for the SEAE and for, for the barista community, like you were touching into. Mm. Uh, because, like, uh, the marketing department at uh, Solberg Hansen at that time was Tone. Tone Liavog. Yeah. Um, and she was... Uh, Basically, given you know, uh, the I mean, she was obvi obviously working more than normal hours and and uh, and all that, but uh, but she was giving a lot of uh, freedom in order to to spend time on this, mm. both the SCIE uh, and uh, I mean, the organizational work and also the the barista competitions, mm. uh, and uh, and this was like a yearly event in the beginning. But what we also had at Solberg, which I think was kind of the most. Uh, um, uh, rewarding for the community was that we, uh, I mean, they had legendary uh, Christmas parties, yeah, uh, and maybe also summer parties, uh, where you know where they invited the, the community and and we started also having. Um, I remember the first barista jam we had. That was a big thing at that time, mm. uh, where uh, I mean, uh, a whole team of you know there were like five or six or seven. I don't remember exactly from Stumptown Coffee Roasters in Portland. Yeah. They came to Oslo because they wanted to learn from us, and yeah. and we had these barista jams where we were, um, yeah, working on the espresso machine, you know, exchanging information and discussing, and I was kind of um, the uh, start, not necessarily the start, but it was the beginning of you know the symposiums and you know yeah. kind of what has come later because it was people have, were so. Uh, interested in learning and there was no, no nowhere to go yeah. uh, and then they were sharing and and the, the beauty of Norway at that time was that uh, there was basically 
uh, at that point, even on the roasting side, not really a competition. So Solberg Hansen was making quite okay money, and then they could spend the money on the community, which was kind of unique in uh, in the world, I would say. Yeah. Okay, there are many things to dig in there. <laughs> yeah. You say community, and I think that has probably been one of the key factors of success here in Norway, that uh, Solberg actually focused on building a co- coffee community. Yeah. And uh, I, we can see that in, in London as well, because when I went to London in 2007, there were like two or three coffee shops uh, far apart, uh, and they were okay. And then Square Mile, uh, I think, opened a small store in 2010 or something when they had the World of Coffee there. And uh, they opened a roastery, and they were focusing a lot on community building uh, events, mm. uh, much more so than marketing their own products. and. Uh, I think that you know, a few years later, the market in London had exploded. There yeah. were so many coffee shops, and uh, so I think that's kind of a, one of the genius uh, things about Swarbrickenhausen is that they maybe they don't, didn't even think about it, but they actually were building community uh, that we are still seeing today. Like uh, s- still some of the same people working in the coffee industry, we know each other, have been working there for you know twenty plus years. Yeah, I, th- I think I mean the. The most important is that not necessarily compete, but you know to, like we, I mean, learning through information exchange or yeah. by by exchanging information and and um, yeah, I mean that, that it was a very good environment for for uh, I mean people was back were backing each other up and and uh, I mean like for sure Alf Kramer was the um, the man that had the let's say the vision of uh, of this community yeah. and Trygve being the owner of Solberg Hansen or majority owner he was uh, he had uh, he wanted circus I mean he had the money and he was also making money on it so it was like <laughs> I mean it's not necessarily cynical but it's just that you know he loved people and he he um, he had the, the ability or the, the instruments yeah and one thing you also mentioned is that we had nowhere to go. So I remember the barista jam session being like uh, in the first floor of Solberg Hansen or like the office floor. There were like six espresso machines. There were yeah. baristas from Sweden, Denmark, US, Norway, you know, just making espresso, having fun. Uh, and we did have some tasks or something that we had to present. I don't remember, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. But uh, you said that we had nowhere to learn. And I remember specifically, I went to Miami when I was competing there in the in the World Barista Championship. And I, I, I had signed up to some espresso classes together with uh, Willy, who was my kind of teacher. And we ended up teaching the instructor of that <laughs> class because he didn't know anything, you know? Uh, he barely knew how to turn on the steam wand. Um, so, um, yeah, we, uh, we ended up teaching him. But we got a certificate afterwards. <laughs> 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 so it was, it was, you know, in the Stone Age, I would have to say. One of the things uh, that I, I find uh, to be kind of uh, a turning point in my career was uh, actually the World Barista Championship in 2002. Uh-huh. Uh, I had gotten the silver medal in 2001, and also in 2002, I was kind of the favorite to win. The event was in Oslo. I had practiced a lot um, and was, in my mind, the perfect barista, technically. <laughs> And then I didn't win. I came second. And on the first uh, first uh, spot was Fritz Storm, who uh, won first place and serving Illy coffee. Uh, and he 
actually hadn't even qualified for the finals, but there was a finalist that was disqualified. I think he had alcohol in his drink or something. So they called Fritz while he was on his way to the airport and asked him if he could return so that he com could, could compete in the finals. And then he won. Huh. And I think, you know, um, two, two things have really changed uh, my mind there. And the first thing was the service, because uh, I was quite an obnoxious, uh, arrogant barista, I would say. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, arrogant, for sure. And um, I didn't really pay attention to the service part of being a barista. And uh, when I watched a video of his performance and my performance uh, one year or two years later, when I was preparing for the Trieste um, competition, it was so clear why he won and I could never win. Because it was, as a customer, it was uh, a pleasure to be served by Fritz. Yeah. And it was totally awkward to be served by me. Yeah. So it didn't really matter if the drinks were better or not. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I just have an interesting um, observation on that. Because, I mean, I, we were working together uh, at that time. I mean, because Solberg owned, like you said, the mm. Stockfest where you were working. Uh, and I kind of, I mean, uh, I remember I, I remember very well the the competition in Oslo and I remember after you were finished I, I you know I was bugging you behind the scenes on uh, the back backstage whatever to see uh, and you were not happy and you were you know whatnot but but I I had I mean I, I'm not going to say who it was but uh, I had an American staying in uh, in my house that was visiting for that event yeah and I remember we drove from my house to uh, Shirtist uh, in Oslo where the competition was um, and uh, and in that car, I mean, in that, that morning, I, I talked to him and I said, I mean, he had been in coffee like, let's say, you know, 10 years already or 15, maybe. Uh, and then I, um, I was saying that, you know, that you were competing and that I had faith in you and, uh, and that you, I, I kind of said to him that I, this is, you know, kind of the future because they, they have, I mean, these, these guys, I mean, because you're like seven years younger than me, maybe yeah, something like that. Uh, so I was like, this is a new generation. I mean, they they have a different approach to, to coffee. They do it much more meticulously, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, he was completely opposed. And he was like, no, no, no. I mean, you were too young. You had too little of uh, whatever. And then I was like, this is exactly what I don't like about, you know, professions or if it's like unions or whatever, where, where people just exclude other people that are coming up with, with a different... Um, uh, attack angle basically yeah. and then just because they don't have the seniority or and this is exactly what the Americans had you know uh, especially this person uh, and I was I was kind of shocked because I mean this is I believe was what w I mean first of all makes the um, industry go further but mm. but also like even at that time even though you were like we talked about arrogant and whatnot there was a different uh, attack angle even though you didn't have it you had, hadn't covered everything like the, the service part but mm. you you wanted so much to to make coffee better, yeah. And you wanted to compete, and and nobody at that time was competing or rehearsing as much as you were. Yeah. But you just needed to perfectionize. I mean, yeah. so for me it was very interesting, <laughs> very very uh, obvious that you were going to make it sooner or later. But it took too long. Yeah, I remember <laughs> we were actually considered outcast. In we went to these kind of big ballroom parties in the SEA in the America. Yeah. And uh, we were like sitting at the table in the corner. And I remember I was thrown out of a party because we were a little bit too loud. You yeah. know, we were just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, whatever. But uh, back to the game-changing uh, experience of losing. Um, so service for me was one thing, and that's when I kind of started thinking about, you know, how do you do service in a coffee shop? And Because it already had a reputation of being rude, yeah. like in general. And you see these kind of stereotypical commercials, the rude barista, uh, which is today a little... Yeah, not funny anymore because it it's not relevant anymore. I think, no. uh, at least here in Norway. And then the second thing that uh, was game changer for me was that one of the judges came to me afterwards and said, "You know, Tim, uh, you did everything right, but your coffee was awful." And uh, I had been told the narrative that we had the best coffee in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we had monsoon, triage, monsoon robusta aged coffees in a blend. So um, that really uh, inspired me to do something about it. And uh, it was, I think, just a day after the competition. I was off on a trip to Italy with my good friend and then colleague, Alexander Schenjensen, who is a green buyer at Solbergenhausen now. And we went to Italy for three weeks to kind of learn about coffee. And um, we went to see roasteries. We saw green coffee importers, coffee shops, obviously. And when I came back from that trip, uh, I started sneaking into your storage at Solberg in the basement, taking samples of green coffee. And then Willie showed me how to use the sample roaster without permission, of course, from the big boss. And the roasters were terrified that I would touch the roaster because they were afraid it would explode or something. Mm. <laughs> so that's kind of how I started roasting coffee, actually, and um, exploring uh, flavors. And um, this was beginning of 2003. And I remember I, was, I didn't really understand flavors. Everything tasted the same to me. Um, and then I went to Boston. Um, in 2003 as well. Yeah. Visited uh, George Howell's restaurant back then because he had sold his coffee connection and had like a quarantine so he couldn't open coffee shops again. But he served coffee in his restaurant and one of the coffees was a Kenya and that's the first time I could describe a flavor in coffee that was not coffee flavor. It tasted like blackcurrant juice. Mm. Uh, probably it was his Mamuto, the famous Mamuto or something. So that was super inspiring and I came back um, to Norway and wanted to make a blend that tasted like fruit instead of, you know, tar and ashes and <laughs> burnt uh, wood. Um, and then I think that's when I started the blending coffee for uh, and made the famous or infamous espresso blend for Stocklets oh. uh, that we only sold in, in Stocklets. And uh, they allowed me into the roastery after a while. Um, first, I had to roast on the big roaster. So I had to pre-blend everything. Uh, I was not allowed to push the buttons even on the machines. Uh, I could stand next to them and tell them what to do. I was standing there, you know, with a, a spreadsheet, not on a computer because I didn't have a computer. Uh, it was writing down every 10 seconds the temperature and everything like that. And then I could tell them, now we have to push the button. And then they pushed the button. And then after a while, I was allowed to push the buttons. And then after a longer while, um, it turned out the small roaster they had there, was, which was like a 25 kilo roaster, that they said was broken. It wasn't broken. They just didn't want me to <laughs> use it. <laughs> but then we figured out uh, how to use it. Um, much thanks to Morten Veneshkor, actually, who is working with you now at Nordic Approach. Because he had started and uh, he was kind of like, uh, had taken like an engineer education in coffee. So he said, oh, just, you know, 
plug in the roaster and it'll start. And then we did that. And then I started roasting on that small roaster, uh, making my own espresso blend for stocklets. Yeah. And I remember I, I had to come in at eight in the morning, I started blending, uh, weighing up the batches, roasting. And then I had to pack the coffee afterwards. We actually packed them in sealed bags. And then I couldn't even eat lunch because then I wouldn't have time to finish it all. Because 10 to 4, they left the roastery and then I wasn't allowed to be there anymore. Because <laughs> I had to be there under supervision. So that's how much trust they gave me. Um, but it was fun. Like um, It changed a lot the flavor of the coffee we served. Um, it went from being like really dark roast. Uh, and believe it or not, this was considered an extremely light roast, the, the one that I roasted. But we roasted it to second crack. So just when you started hearing the second crack, that's when we took it out. Huh. And if you think about that today, you know, that's super dark. <laughs> but um, the, the traditional coffee they roasted back then was roasted well into second crack. And, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I remember that period uh, very well because you you did, uh, it was a UG22 actually. Yeah, 22, uh, yeah. Uh, and it was from the 50s or 30s or 40s. It was uh, very old. Um, but we... Um, we, we didn't use it at Solbergen. And Morten, uh, he started in, at uh, Solbergen Hansen in 2003. Uh, and uh, and he, he took really, uh, let's say, a lead on, uh, on, uh, on the product uh, side and uh, production. Mm. So it was very good also for you because, I mean, then you could push each other. And, and um, yeah, but, I mean, generally people, old school people at Solberg, like they... They were generally against that, you know, because the the secret was that uh, Johnny, uh, at that time the the head roaster at Solving Nelson, mm. Trigve was saying that Johnny made love to the beans yeah. when he was roasting, which was <laughs> absolute nonsense. Sorry, I mean Johnny was a fantastic roaster, yeah. but uh, he was not making love with the beans. He was a production worker, yeah. um, and, and at that time they were also, I mean, this is how it was. They were smoking cigars when they were roasting coffee. Especially when they roasted the cigar blend. Yeah. <laughs> and no, but they had no sense. I mean, no sense. Also, the time, no sense of, uh, um, like, uh, s- s- uh, you know, the the vulnerable vulnerability of coffee. Yeah. Uh, and um, and they, th- I mean, they were completely against that we were sharing information with you. Yeah. Uh, because you would start compete with us. And I, um, at that time, I was responsible there or uh, managing, and I was like come on I mean the competition is good yeah I mean he will never I mean I I was kind of sure I mean that you would never I mean first of all you were working with us yeah and uh, even though I kind of maybe didn't know but you could think that you would leave at some point then still I mean you want to have real competition yeah uh, that can move the the industry or the trade or whatever in a, in a good way yeah so, so I mean I was never against it but uh, there was very strong forces internally that didn't like that the young people were for sure <laughs> <laughs> and I, one of the things that i discovered there was uh we talked about water quenching the coffee earlier on but uh with the ug22 that that was not an option no and i'd learned in italy that uh, if you water quench the coffee the shelf life is much shorter so i stopped doing it obviously on the small roaster and we figured you know the coffee didn't taste good after three four days like it used to but after a week, it tasted great, and then it lasted much longer. Yeah. So that's why how we discovered how to rest the coffee, and also we packed it in sealed bags instead of the paper bags. Obviously, yeah. you just read the literature, and you know there's a reason why everyone does it. And um, I remember we had a 
uh, email conversation. I've actually saved that mail. I'm not going to read it here, but uh, <laughs> I've saved it because it's one of the most funny conversations we've had, I think, uh, yeah. over quality with you, me, and Morten, and I think Alex also was involved, about whether it's better to uh, pack the coffee in sealed bags or not. Yes, that's true. And uh, Morten, with a, uh, I've discussed this many times with Morten, and we laugh over it now, but he had just you know, come out of uh, university with a degree in coffee and yeah. said, like, oh, no, there's no proof, you know, like, uh, yeah. just read the literature. <laughs> so that was quite funny. But, um, you know, time moves on, and the quality got better. And... After a while, Solberg also started packing all the coffee in sealed bags and uh, roasting much lighter. But but the funny thing is, like uh, in 2004, because uh, 100, no, Solberg had the 125 years anniversary, because they were founded in 1879. Yeah. Uh, so I remember when it was 125 years old. We before that we got this uh, two and a half kilo pouches and one kilo pouches. Yeah. For um, I mean sealed bags, uh, and. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, I remember, I mean, Trygve, the owner, majority owner, he was, I ordered a machine uh, and uh, and we got it and he was furious uh, because he, uh, uh, a packaging machine was, I mean, in the 50s when the, the industrialization in coffee in Norway happened or mm. 60s, whenever it was, uh, they tried to compete with the big one, Solberg, mm. uh, and they lost and they were almost going bankrupt because mm. they were doing trying to be industrialized, mm. and that's when they also changed to be more like the handicraft uh, yeah. uh, trade uh, trader. Um, but then, so so in his his perception, uh, the vacuum uh, uh, pouch, uh, whatever packing machine, almost killed Solberg Hansen in the fifties. So when we tried to, or when we bought a packaging machine in uh, in the early two thousand, he was. He was, you know, thinking that this will be the end of Solberg. Oh, man. <laughs> Reliving a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we tried it before. I mean, this is like, we tried it before, it always killed us, it's never going to happen again. Yeah. But it had to happen. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of, uh, of green coffee. Because uh, when I started roasting espresso, uh, the coffees that I had to choose from was obviously the coffees in the basement of Solberg & Hansen. Yeah. And there were such names as Colombia Excelso, uh, Brazil, Golden Santos, yeah. Monsoon Malabar, uh, maybe there would be uh, Ethiopia, grade one or something, or grade two. Uh, there were no names on the bags, or very little at least. And I remember actually very early on when I started working in Stocklets, uh, we heard about Cup of Excellence. I think it started in 99. I mean, the first auction was Best of Brazil. That was in 99. Okay. Uh, that was George Howell and Susie Spindler. They had like, I think it was 11 lots uh, uh, or 11 um, different coffees that were auctioned. Mm. And I think, if I don't remember wrong, Solberg bought seven out of 11. Of uh, those coffees? Yes. Wow. Because, I mean, so this is, again, uh, how Solberg was instrumental because there was no market. Mm. And, and uh, those coffees were not even expensive. Maybe they were, I don't remember, maybe $3 per pound or $2.50. And the lots were bigger. Yeah. Uh, so Solberg bought uh, a lot of them. And, and after that came, in 2000, came Cup of Excellence. Mm. And, and that's basically the start of uh, what you were asking. Yeah. So Cup of Excellence being a, is like an internet auction for the best coffees in a certain or in different uh, coffee origins where farmers can submit samples, they get evaluated blindly, and then the best ones get auctioned out on the internet. And I remember 
at least in the 2000, I remember uh, Trygve, the owner of Sobring Hansen, talking about how he had installed two uh, phone lines so he could have faster internet, so he could bid on these coffees, because there were actually internet auctions. Yeah, and we, <laughs> uh, we were, I mean, I remember we were, uh, I mean, I, I started, uh, I joined Solberg um, um, summer 2000, so so it was like before the, basically the autumn uh, auction at the uh, Cup of Excellence, and mm. I, I remember that, you know, we were all kind of, several of us were instructed to, to be on the computer and be, you know, security for uh, uh, if if something went down. Yeah. So so we were. It was a big thing because he he wanted this uh, publicity and uh, and to buy and he bought or Solberg and Hansen bought a lot. At I mean until the fir- I mean I don't know exactly, but let's say the first 12, 13, 14 years we bought at every auction. Yeah. Uh, and more than very often number one, very often. Sometimes it developed, so we bought number seven instead because it was better. Yeah. Uh, when we have more credibility uh, or more, uh, what do you self-esteem? Yeah. Uh, but anyways, it was a big thing, and it ch- completely changed how we bought coffee. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, just to give some context to younger listeners, in yeah. '98, '99, internet had just started. Yeah. We didn't have smartphones. You know, a web page would look more or less like an email today (laughs) or even worse. So this was a quite pioneering work. But I remember specifically one coffee from Guatemala called La Perla and uh, Las Nubes. And there was uh, the Kilimanjaro from uh, El Salvador. Uh, some of these coffees were phenomenal yeah. uh, and s- tasted something, you know, like uh, compared to the other coffees that was generic, most likely quite old coffees with the low sweetness and more like woody flavors. All of a sudden you got coffees that tasted like fruit. They had acidity. They were clean. They were sweet. Um, it was incredible. Uh, and I remember using uh, some of these single estate coffees in the blend that I made and roasted for the 2004 World Barista Championship. So I actually competed with um, a blend that was a natural Brazilian coffee that was not pass crop. <laughs> <laughs> the first year that the Solberg actually had that, I remember Morton bought it. Um, there was some Colombian coffee without an address, so Colombia Excelso. There was uh, El Salvadoran coffee called Bourbon Jungle in Norway, but it's from a farm called El Condor, I think. Yeah, El Alto. And then uh, there was uh, a Kenyan coffee, and there w- the, it had a cooperative name, but I don't remember which one it was. So that was kind of the main blend, and then I <coughs> had some Robusta, just <laughs> for the crema, <laughs> but I didn't talk about that. But the Robusta was from an Indian estate. Um, yeah. I think it was from, uh, what's the... Ashok, uh, Yeah, I think yeah. it was from Ashok. Balanur. Yeah. And then for the signature drink, I had a single estate Australian coffee, believe it or not, from Mountaintop. Mountaintop, <laughs> <Yeah>. Andrew Ford. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was interesting. <laughs> this sounds like uh, crazy, but I think I was the first barista to be ever using a single origin coffee in a signature drink. Yeah. And also, I was one of the first to roast my own coffee. Most of the c- competitors that year had like Ely coffee or, you know, commercial blends. Yeah. Um, but uh, there were, of course, a few from the like the U- United States barista champion had, uh, of course, their own blend and stuff like that. So, but it was very, very new. Uh, and I remember that in the next year, the following year in 2005, there were several baristas competing with single single estate coffees, like 
only, not even a blend in their cappuccino, mm. which was mind blowing. Um, so times change. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean to uh, to the history note kind of because I remember I mean uh, not only did um, let's say a cup of excellence. Uh, identify the unique uh, producers that were putting more effort into selecting and uh, and uh, creating these lots that were unique mm. like you were saying mm. uh, but they also um, it was a discovery mechanism where we actually got to know who they were mm. and we can travel and visit them yeah because that didn't happen before and and like uh, another famous uh, coffee producer Elinhat in Heto mm-hmm. in Guatemala I mean I remember we went there after a cup of excellence uh, we bought uh, their coffee. I think it was they were number two when when we bought it, and it was the, they even gained a higher price than number one yeah. at that time uh, as number two, which is not happening anymore. Yeah. I mean, not very often at least. But anyways, the, um, uh, when we were there, and still they have this guest book in uh, many of the farmers have, and uh, Solberg and Hansen, and uh, I think it was Morten and me, we were the first ones ever from a consuming country to to visit the farm. Mm. And it's crazy. It seems unheard of <laughs> now because I mean now we have coffee, coffee tourism and and uh, it seems obvious that you go and visit your farm and that you partner up. But but uh, it wasn't that way before. No, I remember uh, I asked uh, Marisa Bell and Moises about these uh, producers who buy from in Honduras, and yeah. I remember they told me that uh, the, even their father, but uh, or Marisa Bell's father, and especially her grandfather, they would receive orders for their coffee via telegram. Exactly. <laughs> 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 and then I would put the coffee on on donkeys or mules, and then actually walk with the mules to to the port, hmm. and then load it on to boats. Crazy. And the coffee was packed in leather pouches. Yeah. This was obviously before us. But yeah. <laughs> but um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what the cup of excellence has meant to coffee prices. And I think you know, even though maybe Trigve, the owner of Solberg, was not necessarily always buying the best coffees, and he was at least for me. It's been an important inspiration, and probably you've been a big part of it as well because you've been CEO of that company for a long time. But the importance of paying producers a good price, the importance of transparency, uh, and knowing where the coffee is from, and uh, also obviously the importance of buying better coffees. Um, what do you think the Cup of Excellence has kind of done to that? Because as you said before them, uh, we didn't really buy coffees with an address. No, we didn't. And I think that, uh, uh, I mean, there's an, a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, things to say r- around this, because I remember uh, in the beginning when we had Cup of Excellence, I mean, it was like cherry picking. You you chose the ones you, you liked the most mm. and you bought it and you could sell it. You could use it as a, also to raise the prices in in uh, in the I mean in the market basically because I mean then you had the proof that you paid very high p- prices. Yeah. So so you got used to paying higher prices. That's one important thing. And then the second thing was that we, um, because I remember I had discussion with Morten and you uh, back back in uh, early 2000s where, you know, Morten was very, I mean, those who know Morten, he's very opinionated as well and uh, has a strong opinion. Mm. And he was like, yeah, I will buy only the best uh, coffee. Mm. Uh, and then uh, after some years, he was like, ah, maybe not. Maybe it's good to partner up. Maybe it's good to work over time. And, and you know, you know, you go, I mean, quality, you know, because of many reasons, uh, climatical, uh, at least one uh, very major factor. Uh, 
quality will vary. Mm. And if you if you kind of if you buy coffee from a producer only one year when when the per- product is let's say n- near perfect, and then the next year it's not good. I mean, it's not consistent. Yeah. So I mean, this is also what we learned during those years. Mm. Uh, that um, I mean, what we did was we bought through Cup of Excellence. We paid a very high price. Let's say you know ten or twelve or whatever uh, dollars per per pound, uh, and then. The next year you wanted to buy the coffee directly yeah and then you made long-term contracts maybe three years five years and then instead of paying i mean the market at the time was maybe one something mm. uh, per pound 150 maybe yeah. i don't remember exactly it's the same as today unfortunately yeah it's yeah. very low <coughs> uh, but uh, so maybe we made a contract that we paid three uh, i mean now we would maybe pay i mean uh, comparably seven or i don't know it it, it depends you know uh, the availability and the volumes, but but the thing was like there was a willingness to to start this you know partnership, mm. uh, which is again can um, it, it's just more sustainable I yeah. guess, and uh, probably probably a, uh, a kind of inspiration to what a lot of people call direct trade relationship coffees yeah. uh, would, would probably not happen if it wasn't for the kind of. Uh, Cup of excellence and the, the kind of the focus on the farmers because before that you know coffee was just a bulk product yeah and uh, yeah exactly so the most important is that you you got the farmer and very often i mean what i what i really really loved uh, personally about the cup of excellence is that you i mean it's a very st- rigid um uh protocol mm. uh with the auditors and you know so every sample uh, they have some requirements that it has to be more than you know let's say seven bags or 300 kilos or I mean it has to be a minimum you cannot produce two kilos and go to a cup of excellence auction yeah but uh, so there has to be some scale but not not big uh, and um, and uh, and there's a cutoff date of course but at the end of the day uh, everyone can enter and you are being judged from the sample only yeah and it's cupped so many times i mean first there's a national jury and then there's an international jury and everyone is doing it blind and nobody knows what coffee they're cupping yeah so there's no i mean so let's say the um, uh, the resourceful rich i mean i'm talking about people with money so i mean what you saw was like you know farmers in honduras or in el salvador or i mean people who they they don't know the market they don't know uh, even english they don't I mean, they could be basically analphabets mm. and still produce the best coffee and get rewarded for it, mm. which is fantastic because mm. otherwise it's always, you know, the, the survival of the strongest kind yeah. of where you can go to the fairs, like you said, in Boston or, I mean, if you're from Guatemala and you are wealthy, yeah. you can go to a trade show in the mm. U.S. and you can sell your coffee. Yeah. So yeah, sure. uh, so it's much, much more fair. So open up the market also for farmers who never had access to the market yeah and uh, and also i mean unfortunately there as everywhere else in in the world there's also some tragedies there where you know like um, a farmer in yeah guatemala for instance can uh, all of a sudden get tremendously high uh, reward on his coffee mm. and then he starts you know drinking more and then everything goes <laughs> goes <laughs> i mean so so it's it's not only good but no. i mean but it's at least fair yeah uh, I remember it's. I mean, the some of the buyers that would frequent Cup of Excellence, like uh, uh, Peter Giuliano from Counterculture, uh, Dwayne Sorensen from Stumptown, uh, there was Jeff Watts from yeah. Intelligentsia, it was Robert Thorson from uh, Kaffa, and then Sobe Hansen would always have a copper there as well. Yeah. 
it was like a group of coppers and some Japanese uh, coppers. Uh, they would frequent uh, the judging panels of these competitions. And uh, at least the American ones for me was a big inspiration on the importance of kind of establishing relationships with these farmers and also Solberg for sure. Yeah. Um, but as when I started my company in 2007, that was kind of the model uh, that I was looking for. Um, you know, finding some farmers through a couple of accents and then establishing a relationship and then buying from them. And we did that. Uh, I'm going to talk about that probably in the next episode. We did that already in 2009, 10, and uh, I'm still buying coffee from them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and uh, what, what you didn't touch into, which is also, I'm going back because I, I thought about it just now, um, the, um, uh, like when, when you won the Barista Championship in Oslo, no, mm. not in Oslo, but in, in Trieste, in Trieste uh, I remember like another, uh, let's say, capacity in the coffee, uh, Italian uh, Roberto Pregil. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, because I mean, American, no, it's Americans, I was saying, I mean, uh, Italians, uh, they have this strong culture of espresso, where you have to go, when you go to the shop, you have to... Um, uh, you, I mean, it's you pay very little for the coffee, mm. and you get it over the counter. And you took a, you, most people take a, a spoon of uh, sugar and yeah. then blend it in and uh, and drink it very quickly. Uh, and uh, and that was their culture. And and he, after he tasted your coffee in, as a judge, yeah, he uh, he came and said that you know, that's the first time. And he was like in his fifties, I guess, yeah, at that time. And he was like, first then he understood being working with espresso his whole life i think he grew up in a espresso roasting family mm. uh, that he understood that coffee can actually be dr drinking without sugar <laughs> espresso he said that yeah he said that oh, i didn't know so no but he so he was like he he was like a, awakening for him because yeah. i mean it was so sweet and it was fruity and i remember he said it and uh, and this is you know it's just yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And just to give some context to that as well, that coffee that I served then was considered very light to roast, yeah. very acidic. It was roasted for 20 minutes to second crack. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for those who are not roasting coffee, today we probably roast for around 10 to 11 minutes on a more efficient roaster. But um, it's still in this first crack when we take it yeah. out. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's a different product today, I think, uh, compared to, to that was in 2004. One of the things, uh, let's go into 2005. We're not going to go all every year, but um, 2005 was for me, first of all, I won the World Cup Tasting Championship. Yeah. I didn't even practice for it. And uh, I was kind of competing as a coincidence because I was one of the few Norwegians who were in Athens where they had the World Championship. Of Kramer basically asked me, Tim, why don't you just compete? And I said, yeah, I've been cupping coffees because I was making my espresso blend. I was tasting coffees. And I think, you know, without thinking about it, I had been training as a copier without thinking about it. So I ended up winning that, which was fun. I don't really think of it or use it or, you know, like it was just a fun thing. But one of the other things that I really remember from that there was there was the World Barista Championship in Seattle. Yeah. And I went to a cupping uh, uh, to John Sanders coffee shop. I don't remember the name of the coffee shop, but he was like a figure in the World Barista Championship. And La Marsocco, he had the yeah. dealership, I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And um, he had a cupping and then they had famously bought a coffee named Esmeralda, ah. Geisha. 
And I went to the cupping and uh, could not understand what the fuss was about because it tasted, it was so dark, you know. And then uh, everyone was raving about this geisha coffee. Uh, and I think it was the year after when I tasted it. I think Robert bought it uh, here in Norway. And I tasted it roasted much lighter. And then I understood, aha, uh-huh. <laughs> this is something amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the first year of the geisha thing, but at least they broke the record of like, I think it was sold for like $25 a pound or something, which yeah. was back then a huge record. Uh, and ever since, you know, uh, Esmeralda has won the Best of Panama auction year after year yeah. with, with their famous geisha variety. True. Um, we don't necessarily need to dig so much in about the, the geisha in particular, but I think that was the first time where variety or cultivar was talked about as being important in coffee. Yeah. Before that, it was more like region, land, you know, maybe altitude. And we we had a little bit. Uh, I mean, this Pacamara bean. I mean, that was a little bit of a buzz. Oh yeah, that's true. But that was mainly. I mean, due to characteristic, but also it was size. Yeah, the, it was the, a yeah, big, it was yeah. big beans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I think, like for sure, the Esmeralda has been yeah. uh, the most important one when it comes to variety, and everyone is trying to plant geisha today, even myself. Yeah, it's quite difficult to grow, uh, and it's not a guarantee for high quality for sure. So it's a picky variety or cultivar. But um, the Panamanians have really uh, excelled with this cultivar and are fetching. You know, I think the best price that I've seen. Uh, was a few years ago when someone paid like two thousand dollars per pound or something. That's crazy. Yeah. But that was like a couple of kilos for a competition, you know, <laughs> whatever. And I'm not sure if it was even true. You know, you hear rumors, and but at least it 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 was it has been breaking price records since it came, or since they discovered it yeah. uh, on their farm. And at least one of the most positive things, apart from having focus on variety, is that it took the focus away from Copy Luwak. Jamaica Blue Mountain that you mentioned. Mm. Coffees that are more like a novelty or like a, the story is more important than the actual quality. Yeah. Um, we're obviously not a huge fan of coffee Luwak or... <laughs> I mean, I've been to Jamaica and tasted good coffee, so they have good coffee. They have good coffee, yeah. but it's not n- but it's not because it's packed in a barrel and uh, <laughs> that it comes from Jamaica. I mean, no. it's, uh, I mean, the coffee can be good. And, uh, and I have to say, I mean, one of the best expressions I've heard in coffee it's George Howell yeah. uh, from Coffee Connections um, back in the days. He sold to Starbucks in late 90s or mid 90s, I yeah. think. Anyways, he um, he very bluntly said that Kopi uh, Luwak is coffee from assholes for assholes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know what Kopi Luwak is, Google it. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think we have to start wrapping up a little bit. Um, but uh, we have to make this into a two-episode uh, uh, subject because we haven't even started on my own company, <laughs> which started in 2007. We haven't even reached that yet, So, um, uh, but we're already well over an hour. But um, let's try to sum it up a little bit. Um, Nordic Barista Cup is something we need to talk about before we end this, and um, also how I kind of started planning my own company, we can also mention. But yeah, let's talk about Nordic Barista Cup. We've yeah. been touching on it yeah. a little bit. Maybe it started with the barista jams. Yeah, I mean, so my, my perception of this, uh, because I was 
uh, or I am still involved basically on the board for, for Nordic Barista Cup. Mm. Uh, but, I, but how it was in my mind, I mean, I may not be completely right, but there was uh, like a um, uh, uh, like an, uh, um, 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 a guy working on the Norwegian embassy in, uh, in Copenhagen. Yeah. Uh, Sigve something uh, I don't remember I don't his remember name. his name now unfortunately but uh, he um, he was working there and he was a fan of uh, Coffee Europa I guess and Jens Nørgård so yeah. they 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 talked a lot and so they ended up sen- setting up a, um, a national championship between Denmark and Norway yeah uh, and then we we went there and we compete competed I don't think I don't remember who won maybe Norway Yes. Yes. Uh, I was on the team. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was that was the. I mean, after the Barista Jams, this was the first uh, event. And then I remember that Jens Nørgaard from Café Europa in Copenhagen. He said that, but uh, because he was kind of doing this, mm. um, uh, and then he was uh, um, planning to do something more. And then I I remember I took the elevator with him. Uh, I think maybe it was at a trade show after not. At that, at that event, but yeah. uh, later, where he was talking about this, and I said that there's no way you can do this without Solberg or us yeah. or Norway, because I mean we have been doing this so many years, so we have to be part of it, and that's actually how we um, became part of it and mm-hmm. how we started working on the Nordic Barista Cup yeah. as a as a formal um, organization. So, so there was like one representative from each uh, Nordic country, and we started uh, just you know volunteering time and and uh, and the reason f- as i mean was that you know the world barista championship had become a little bit of a one man show or one woman show i mean it's usually mostly men who compete for mm. some reason yeah but it's like it's you know and they have coaches now and they train but it's it's like one person on the stage for f- 15 minutes or whatever it is or 10 minutes and then that's it. And mm. there's a lot of work behind them before, but it doesn't add anything to the community no. uh, other than inspiration. Yeah. And and so for us, the, the Nordic Barista Cup was like, it was like, okay, let's, let's, you know, make this fun again. Let's build knowledge and act together and have some competition to gain some, you know, I mean, just have fun yeah. basically and learn. And, uh, and that's what the purpose was. And we did that for... I mean, the first one was that, was that two thousand seven or? Oh, can't remember. Um, no, it was before that. Before two, yeah. no, it was before two thousand and four. Actually, four. Yeah, that's right. It was the year I was the champion. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and then we had that was the battle between Norway and Denmark. It was like a football game. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And then two thousand five was the first one in Denmark where we had Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, and Iceland. Yeah. They had teams with four baristas each, and uh, we competed. Uh, and then there was also a symposium for the audience exactly. uh, to learn something. Mm. Uh, the slogan of Nordic Barista Cup was to be together, act together, learn together. Yeah. So it was basically a three-day event where 150 to 250 people were together all the time, uh, having breakfast, lunch, and dinner, yeah. uh, learning through the symposium and watching the baristas compete and obviously there was a winner at the end but nobody really cared <laughs> it was just fun you know yeah. um, and also after a while uh, we I say we but it was I wasn't involved in the beginning but Jens uh, and you and uh, the board also started uh, with a roaster forum yeah. uh, on the Thursday so the, the barista thing would be the Friday and Saturday yeah. 
Um, I think the first one was in Oslo here, and the first one was with Loring. They had showed their new roster back then. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was really, really uh, instrumental, I think, also to develop not only the kind of barista part, but also everything else. Um, like we, I remember we had lectures about running cafes, uh, how to serve coffee in restaurants, you know, uh, scientific uh, lectures, uh, not too much about service for some reason, but um, we also had farmers coming to teach us about farming. So it really kind of grew the community more than just the barista part of it. Yeah, and I'm sitting uh, watching behind you. I see the the, the, the trophy, the, the trophy yeah, for the trophy. Uh, for Nordic Roaster. Yeah, uh, and you have like seven out of ten or eight, eight, eight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's um, yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, quite an achievement because yeah. it uh, it's also blind and uh, and there's um, yeah, unfortunately you have or fortunately you have it actually uh, now for until. It happens again because yeah. it's closed down for a while. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the Nordic Barista Cup. Uh, I think the last one we did was 2013 or 14. I don't remember. Was here? It was here. In, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Norway. Also. And then uh, basically the organizers. I was part of organizing it back then and uh, didn't have time anymore. Uh, so we decided to focus on the Nordic Roaster Forum. Did that for many years and then uh, that also is now on pause or have ended. We don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's been uh, a lot of fun, at least for me, um, and also I've learned a lot from it, uh, not just from the roasting competitions, but uh, mainly from the symposiums. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm coming back to what you said about this uh, community thing, because, I mean, everything we have touched into now, I mean, first of all, I mean, the Barista Jams and, and the local community in Oslo, mm. uh, and then secondly... Cup of Excellence is the same because, I mean, like you said, all the jurors that were traveling, mm. frequenting uh, the different auctions in, I mean, I don't know how many countries Cup of Excellence have, but it's more than 10. Mm. Um, and uh, and then again now Nordic Barista Cup. And it's all been like this community where, uh, which is very interesting with coffee because, I mean, coffee is the biggest commodity, uh, traded commodity. Um, and still it's like when when I first traveled to uh, I think my first origin trip was in 2001 mm. and I met George Howell, like you mentioned, and uh, a couple of other people and the same people you meet if you travel today. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is kind of interesting. So it, it is uh, like an extended family and this is the community which we yeah. can uh, develop uh, or have to develop things together with. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, 2005 uh, for me was kind of a year where... Um, I started traveling a little bit more. I got a lot of requests to do seminars and stuff uh, because I'd been the world champion. The champion era didn't get too many requests because that was the norm back then. They waited until I was cheaper the year after yeah. <laughs> and there was a new champion. Um, but then my idea of starting my own company started rising and I think I left Stockflits in the end of 2005 and worked as a freelance consultant from 2006, spent a lot of times on blogging and forums and stuff like that, which was popular back then. And then it was in 2006, in the summer, it was a World Barista Championship in Bern, I think early June or something. And then uh, I mentioned to you that I had plans to start my own company. And then you told me this was in a party on the last day of that event. And you said, uh, we need to talk when we get home. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how 
the start of my company started. I think we should uh, end it here. And that's a good teaser for the next episode. Yeah. Maybe I can invite you back yes, if you have time. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from 2007 and on uh, is when we opened Tim Wendelbo, the coffee roasting company here. And um, we've done a lot as well. And uh, I tried to kind of summarize everything. And it's a lot. So um, uh, I was very productive, at least in the first years <laughs> <laughs> when I was young. So uh, thank you, Andreas, for joining us for this episode. It's been thank a lot of fun. Thank you, Very interesting. walk down memory lane, yeah. get a different perspective on what we're doing today, um, get a little bit of history behind it. And for those of you who are interested, I think I will invite Andreas back because he's been part of the board of directors for my company since it started and also instrumental in the startup of it. So if you want to hear that story, then you should tune into the next episode. Uh, which we'll probably publish in about a month. Um, so thank you so far for listening. Thank you, Andreas, for joining. And hope to see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.